The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendorf for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. All right. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. S. Joshua Swamadas. He is a scientist, a physician, an associate professor of pathology, immunology, and biomedical engineering at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He's also a Veritas Forum speaker and blogger. He has a new book out, The Genealogical Adam and Eve. Uh, Dr. Swamadas, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me here. Now, for simple minds like me, pathology and immunology and biomedical engineering seem way above my pay grade. So walk us through what you actually do on a day-to-day basis in your field and, and training other students. Yeah, so I'm a medical doctor and I also have a PhD, so I'm a scientist. What I do is I use artificial intelligence to explore scientific questions at the borderline between or the intersection of medicine, biology, and chemistry. My group is really most known for a lot of the work we've done using machine learning or or deep learning to understand how drugs become toxic. But we've also looked at a whole wide range of other uh, 
questions too, such as how to improve how pathologists look at slides to make diagnoses for kidney transplants, and also how to understand how to understand which mutations are causing cancer in patients. And also, more personally, not through my group, but I've been doing a lot of work on human origins as well. Okay, again, I mean, all that sounds way above my intellectual level. So maybe uh, walk us back to a 14-year-old Joshua. Uh, when did you know you wanted to be uh, a doctor, a pathologist, uh, a biomedical engineer? Um, when and how did you decide to go into this field? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what I do now is basically do science with all my time explore the world to make sense of it, to hopefully do things that help patients and work with students and, and do research. I didn't even know that job existed back when I was 14. <laughs> and so I thought I just wanted to be a physician. But uh, what I found out as I went through my education is that though I, there was a lot of things that drew me to medicine. I was also really drawn to science and I really lucked out by finding a way to do both together. And so that's what I do now. So um, obviously you do these things uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, training kind of the next generation, if you will, along with working uh, and making advancements. Um, you teach, you've written a book. Uh, what do you want us to know about you outside of your actual vocational work? Yeah, so, you know, I'm vocationally a scientist, but I'm also a Christian. Uh, I, from the Lausanne Covenant, I believe the Bible is infallible and inerrant in all that it affirms. I really trust scripture more than science, even though I found a lot of beauty in science. And also I've looked all over science, even though I've devoted my life here and I found a lot of beauty in science. I found really nothing in science that's greater than what I found in Jesus. You know, whether or not evolution is true or false, I've really become convinced that Jesus is greater either way. Sometimes when it comes to origins, we really enter this with a great deal of fear. I certainly did. But I found a confident faith when I really came to understand that it wasn't through arguments against evolution that God revealed himself, but by raising this man, Jesus, from the dead. That's how I know that God exists, and he's good, and he wants to be known. Well, it's it's out of your 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 faith journey. Um, you know, I I remember thinking with a lot of my professors, um, who is who's the person behind the lecture? So, you know, if you were to uh, to let down your 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 professional guard, if you will, you know, uh, who are you as an individual? You know, what are your likes? What are your dislikes? What are your passions outside of your work? Yeah, so I mean, I have a. Uh, uh, well, so I'm, I'm here in St. Louis, which is a really divided city. So even though I'm not really in, involved in this issue as much in my, in, my, in my area, I'm really concerned about issues of race, racial reconciliation and the divides we see here. I'm married to, I'm Indian. Uh, I was born to Indian immigrants and I'm married to uh, a woman from here in St. Louis. We have two children, a one-year-old and a four-year-old. And so they take up a lot of my time. And so uh, it's, it's, really a privilege and good life to be a scientist, but it's also really striking how segregated our world still is, especially here in St. Louis and especially in science. Mm. 
Well, a lot of things can be said about a parent of a one-year-old and four-year-old and definitely never having any free time is something that's never said about, about parenting kids that age. And that's at that age where we're like, uh, I really hope we've proved this house because there is no, uh, there's no controlling where they go and what they're doing right now. It's, it's more like playing uh, zone defense than it is playing anything else. Yeah, that's right. That's definitely taken up a lot. I feel like, uh, you know, I had hobbies for a while, but then my hobbies got professionalized. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Well, you've uh, you've got a a new book out that we're here to discuss, uh, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. Um, This book is an invitation into our understanding of the earliest figures of the biblical narrative, considering the possibility that they too were companions to the evolutionary development of the world. Um, You wrote the claim that Adam and Eve ancestors of all of us were de novo created in neither a scientific claim nor in a scientific conclusion. In this sense, it is improper hypothesis. It is nonetheless a well-specified hypothesis that science can test with evidence. Take us um, into the actual conception of this book. you know, what was going on in your personal faith and professional journey that inspired you to, to write it? Yeah, so I was raised a young earth creationist and was also drawn to science. And as I was drawn to science, it really brought me to a place of uncertainty and even fear regarding many things. It just seemed to be just so much conflict between what I read in scripture and what was in science. Well, I think a really helpful verse that I wish I had known back then and I tell to people in my situation is Proverbs 4, 7, where it says to just seek understanding. And, you know, rather than being fearful, I'd, if, I'd started, if I just sought understanding, maybe there would be less reason to fear. And in fact, that's what I found out. I gradually moved from the, from a young earth creationist point of view to being where I am now, where I'm a Christian that sees legitimacy in evolutionary science and and affirms it as God's providential way of creating us. There was really three key pieces to that step. One was seeing in scripture that there was a mystery outside the garden. That's true of the Genesis tradition as well. In fact, young earth creationism wasn't as traditional of a view as I'd been led to believe. And so that gave me space to really look and consider it. Uh, Then I also had the privilege of being a scientist. Um, I I graduated from undergrad in 2000 when the human genome was first sequenced. I was in my PhD in bioinformatics at University of California, Irvine in 2005 when when the chimpanzee genome was sequenced. And in our genomes, there's just such clear evidence that at the very least it looks like common descent. And I could see that for myself. But the third issue is really an issue of lordship or where I place my loyalties. And for so long, I'd really taken comfort in evolution being wrong as a way to have confidence in a scientific world. But then, you know, I had to really return to the one sign that that Jesus offered and recognize that, you know, that what God did in history to reveal himself through Jesus was far more stable that i mean that was the cornerstone more than any human argument against evolution and you know with those three things in place there just wasn't any reason to reject evolution anymore Hmm. well as you're formulating this book um one of the early chapters you 
invite readers to have courage, curiosity, and empathy on the journey through reading it and through processing it. Why, why is that? Yeah, so this book is not actually an argument for evolution, and it's not even an argument that this particular model of origins is true or correct. It's written for both Christians and non-Christians, and both Christians that believe that Adam and Eve are real and those that think that Adam and Eve are a myth. It's really, it's really a broad, broad audience. And how do you bring so many people with such diverse points of view who have been at war with, with each other, it seems, for quite a while to the table? And I think the right way to frame this, the right way to frame origins is not through camps such as young earth creationists, old earth creationists, evolutionary creationists, and so on and so forth. I think the right way to frame it is in terms of us coming together as society with the right virtues to make space for differences for one another. And one of those ways is by aspiring to the virtues of courage, curiosity, and empathy. And I talk about that at length in the first chapter. In the last chapter, I talk about tolerance, humility, and patience as well as really critical virtues that are found a foundational central way how we can approach these difficult topics together even though they've been conflicted in the past and how we can understand each other and seek to be understood and maybe together even though we disagree on important things approach grander questions together now my parents recently jumped on the uh, wave of ancestry.com and 23andme and all those groups and come to find out our family lineage is from all over the place. Um, probably the most <laughs> surprising for us is that we had a little French Canadian and Scandinavian roots, which we were not at all expecting. So we were all over the historic global map, if you will. You know, among, among the billions of our ancestors, how is it scientifically reasonable that we all could be descendants from a, a single couple who lived in the past 10,000 years. Yeah. So it just turns out that, and I mean, this is mainstream science. I didn't, I'm not even the one who discovered this. This has been well known. There was a key paper published in 2004, but even before that people had recognized that this was a statistical inevitability. It just turns out that, you know, as you go back in time, you see the population of the world really decreasing. However, at the same time, you see the number of ancestors you have increasing. So if you go back one generation, you see two ancestors. Two generations, you see four. Three generations, you see eight. Then you see 16, 32, 64. And so it's increasing really rapidly. And it turns out that that a certain point, very quickly, there, you just from one person, you predict that there's going to be far more ancestors than there were on the globe at that time. So what's going on? It just means that we're double counting ancestors. And we can start doing that across the entire population. And we just find out that we expect because of that exponential explosion of our ancestors as we go back in time, that we expect that there's going to be universal ancestors, people from whom we all descend. In terms of it being a single couple, there's actually many couples for which this is true, who are, this, who are ancestors of all of us. But that's where the theology really helps us, because Scripture doesn't actually use the term human or human beings. The way how Genesis refers to mankind or humankind is actually the word Adam, just Adam. So one way to understand human in Scripture is to say that Scripture is bound to Adam and even their descendants. 
And so maybe they're special in that reason, not because of any biological difference or because other people weren't fully human, but because they're the humans to whom scripture refers, Adam and Eve and their descendants. And then in that sense, they would be you know, the first humans to whom scripture refers in all the globe and all of the people to whom scripture is referring descend from them. So, you know, when we think about faith and science, uh, too many people have framed it in the last two to 300 years as competing against one another. You know, so I guess for you, you know, how does science define uh, human versus how theologically we define human? And, and do these two have any symmetry? Um, And if so, how? Yeah, so that's a great question. So it turns out, and this is surprising to a lot of readers, science doesn't actually have a way of determining what human is. And in fact, there's several different definitions and all of them are unstable. And that's an interminable debate in which scientists are very opinionated, but there's very little evidence to actually guide it. Some people would even say that it just comes out to convention. Now, of course, everyone thinks that all people across the globe today are human. However, there's really no good scientific way to categorize or clarify what the human condition is and when it arises in our past. So that's the first thing. Now, in theology too, there's really no clear agreement about what human is either. There uh, is sometimes, though not always, connected to notions of the image of God. But even then, if you were to take that view, there's a whole range of different ways to understand what the image of God is. So what's going on here? There's this really complex question that neither theologians can agree on, nor scientists can agree on, even amongst themselves, and even with themselves. So if you talk to any scientist or theologian, if you pay attention and listen carefully, you'll probably hear several definitions of the word human arising and how they think about it. So what's going on? Well, I think what's going on is in origins and in theology and in science, we're approaching this grand question, this grand question about what it means to be human. This is a grand question that unsettles any sort of simple answer that we might have. And that's not a bad thing. It just is a sign that we're approaching something transcendent, something important. And that's the grand conversation, in fact, that we could be having now instead of the conflict that some of us have become much more accustomed to. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Uh, Let's take that a little deeper. Um, You wrote, uh, (coughs) Origins is timeless and a living part of our inheritance Uh, continually inviting us into questions of the human condition. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper to what you mean by that. Yeah, so when you think about origins from a scientific view, and then I'm going to talk about it from a theological point of view. From a scientific point of view, we can look at the world today and we see that humans are actually very different than other animals. We have a full language, 
unlike what we see in other animals, we have the ability for written language too. Humans are really exceptional. One, one example I point to in the book is that we all are, uh, we all have a, a concept of grandfathers and that might be uniquely human. Other species, two other species are kind of often uh, offered as a counterexample. That would be killer whales and elephants, but they really only have a concept of grandmothers because they, they are in maternal units. It might be true that humans are uniquely aware of grandfathers and grandfathers recognize children and so on and so forth. So that's how the world is, but how did it get to be that way? When did the human mind arise and how did it arise? Some scientists think it arose as anciently as 2 million years ago in the Homo genus. Others think it was more recent than that, maybe as recently even as 70,000 years ago, or maybe 200,000 years ago with behaviorally modern humans or, or some, some definition of Homo sapiens. But what's remarkable is just that we don't even have a clear way of defining this, nor do we have a way of, of actually seeing it in the evidence. So it just leads to a long conversation of us trying to hash it out. One of the ways this is really clear is the discussion on Neanderthals. It turns out Neanderthals are really important because they were discovered in the 1800s and Neanderthals were on Darwin's mind and Huxley's mind when he proposed, proposed evolution in 1959 and then Huxley wrote about human evolution in 1963. Neanderthals are outside the range of what we consider human today. If you saw a Neanderthal, you'd notice it was different. If you saw a Neanderthal uh, skull, it, it's just different. We've never, we don't see skulls like that around today of people. But it's also far more human-like than any animal. There's really no animal that looks as human-like as a Neanderthal. As we've studied more in archaeology, we find out that Neanderthals were capable of far more than any other animal. So were they human? Well, we don't know. We don't know exactly because we don't really know what human means precisely. And even if we do define it, we're still figuring out and, and debating about what they were capable of. So that's what's going on in science. We can't really answer that question clearly, but that doesn't mean it isn't an engaging, interesting question that we want to study more. But the same question occurs in theology and one of those touch points is actually neanderthals people have wondered for a long time and continue to wonder about whether or not neanderthals were made in the image of god whether or not they were fully human whether or not they descended from adam and eve or not and once again we don't have a clear way to to figure that out because well turns out that there's a lot of disagreement about what the image of god is and it's not clear how to think about how it is that even though we can all agree today that all of us are unique and uh, and that humans, everyone is in the image of God across the globe today, it's just, and also none of us can breed with non-humans or subhumans because none of them are really out around here anymore. Even though that's all true now today, we're still left with this question about what the borderline is between human and what we're, and how humans came to be in the past. That's in the dialogue between science and theology. And in scripture, we see it too. So one of the key things that we learned in scripture is that everyone has sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's important to recognize, however, the teaching of scripture is that 
this notion of being a sinful fallen person is not essential to our, the definition of what it means to be human. When Adam and Eve are created, they're created unfallen and without sin. And they're somehow, in important ways, more fully human than us because they haven't sinned. And in that way, when we see Jesus, you know, we're, we live in a fallen world in which the fall grows into us. And we can't distinguish which part is the fall and which, my, which part is our true nature, which part is the, the cancer that needs to be cut out, and which part is the beautiful thing that, that, uh, that God made uh, f- to satisfy the groaning of nature. We can't really distinguish those things as easily because we've never really encountered a person that wasn't fallen until Jesus. And Jesus really unsettles our understanding of what it means to be human in this way by showing us that there's a way to be human and unfallen. Well, you raise a, a certain fascinating theological and scientific point when you talk about that. So let's talk about the the evolutionary implications of of this couple. Historically, a theological argument has been made for original sin, which actually finds its roots in the works of a Greek philosopher, uh, Celsus, um, actually out of his criticism of the Christian tradition. Original sin is the concept that Adam and Eve's transgressions made the human race corrupt in transgressions from birth. And we know the theological implications for this, whether or not um, one Christian or another might subscribe to this theological conclusion. But what about the scientific perspective into such matters? Is it possible for humans to uh, genealogically pass along such a, a flawed existence uh, from generation to generation? Well, what we know is that DNA does not pass reliably. And so it isn't really a good way to think about how original sin passes. And that's entirely okay. In fact, most theologians already have acknowledged and point out and, and will even complain loudly when people mischaracterize them as thinking that original sin passes by genetics or DNA. That's never been how uh, most theologians or many or any theologians have really thought about how original sin passes. So then... That's one thing that science brings to the table. It just shows how that's not a coherent idea. But that never was really what was proposed by people. Uh, So what then is the way to think about original sin? Well, there is a real deep tradition in the church in thinking about inheritance and how to understand inheritance. I think that's a place where we can go deeper. I mean, as Christians, you know, you talked about Ancestry.com. You know, yes, genetics is part of our inheritance, but we should know that there's far more to inheritance in this. And, and kind of contemplating things like cultural uh, genetics, genealogy, sociology, language, and all these sorts of things, civilization, possessions, things, and and income and and wealth as well, I think we can come to a much richer understanding of inheritance. And that's what we should be thinking about as Christians. And in that space, we can find out that traditional theology really hasn't ever talked about genetics because they didn't know about DNA. And many of the historical ways of understanding original sin in the fall make uh, make entire sense when you understand it as passing by genealogical descent. 
you wrote in the book, uh, theological concerns should never dictate scientific conclusions. At the same time, there's no good reason to ignore questions from theology. Theologically and, and literally, you know, how do you interpret Genesis 1 through 3, uh, let alone Genesis 1 through 11? And I guess as you think about that, um, you know, how does, how does one in your field, how do, you, um, how do you prevent your theological and philosophical convictions from influencing, um, you know, a hypothesis on, on a project like, like this book and the research you put into it? That's a great question. So what I would say is my goal here is dialogue. And my role in this dialogue is as a servant of the church, as a scientist with special expertise and knowledge and ability that's here to serve the church. For that reason, I don't really press my personal point of view. If you read the book carefully, you'll see that I don't actually even reveal what I think personally about Adam and Eve. I'm really trying to serve what I've heard from people as they've raised questions in the church about science. So that then gives an explanation of how I think science and theology are really supposed to be interrelated. I think they're supposed to be related as a meaningful dialogue between two different ways of understanding the world, where we take questions seriously and answer them with rigor, and we listen to one another and we serve each other and we seek to understand and to be understood. So I guess for you, I mean, I know you didn't talk about it in the book, but, um, you know, what are your feelings on, on how we read and interpret Genesis? Well, so I think there's two ways to approach Genesis that I've observed. One is to read it as a chain with many links. The other way to read it as a cord with many strands. So if you read Genesis as a chain with many links, you're going to be concerned if any link breaks, there's going to be a set of interpretations that you bring to the table that if any one of them end up being incorrect or challenged or a person disagrees with you, the entire chain might be broken by one link failing. And so then Genesis becomes a place of conflict, of insecurity, and also fear. So that's one way to approach Genesis. The other way to approach it is as a cord of many strands where we recognize the many colored wisdom of the church and the diversity of views in, way in which the Genesis tradition has engaged with Genesis and we appreciate the mystery and we wonder about it together and we enumerate as many options as possible that could be consistent with science with scripture and with theology. Now, the advantage of that approach is that if one strand breaks, if one reading of Genesis ends up breaking, there's still a whole cord of other strands that, some, that are still viable. And so for that reason, we are able to approach the text in a different way, which promotes curiosity and creativity. It gives us an opportunity and a way to serve people with whom we disagree. And it also, uh, it also gives us a way to really dignify different traditions across the church. Luzon Covenant and, uh, paraphrases Ephesians saying that there's many colored wisdom visible in, in the church. I think that's uh, an important theological observation. I think it was John Stott who said this, who wrote this. 
And I think what's going on here is it's not merely about what, uh, you know, we personally think about a particular passage. It's really also about a doctrine of infallibility in which we believe that God guides the church. He guides the church through history to really take hold of the things that are important to, to us for our time and also through time. And if you look at Genesis, you see that there's been a large range of very faithful views of Genesis. And that's actually what uh, makes the Genesis account alluring and durable and interesting. There's many, there's many faithful ways to read it in which we really see this many-colored wisdom of the church arise. Now, that's not to say that anything goes. There's certain things that the church tradition has really made clear. I talk about some of these in my book uh, that, that are really important for theology. But even with that, I think it's important for us to really think about what is orthodox versus what could be possibly be a faithful heterodox, but not heresy. People that we disagree with, maybe we think they're really wrong, but we think we also agree that they're, that they're taking a faithful reading of the text to at least their understanding and that they haven't committed any grave error. <laughs> and I think as we recover this idea of, of tolerance and diversity, and celebrating these things as a cord of many strands rather than a chain of many links, I think that the church will be far healthier and the conversation about origins will be far more interesting and fun. I certainly can um, uh, respect and um, I see a lot of great wisdom in the approach you've taken there. Um, you know, you and I might not use the same terminology when we talk about scripture, but uh, there's a generosity that you're giving to those you might not see eye to eye with that allows them to come to a table to have a conversation. And I think part of our problem um, is that I found that there's fundamentalism on both extremes of both the right and the left. And it tends to be that we want to uh, villainize and criminalize those that don't see eye to eye with us. And what I hear you saying is, um, you know, we have to, we ha I, I love what you said that we have to at least believe that if somebody uh, doesn't have the same interpretation as us, that they're faithfully trying to interpret the text um, in such a way to to their faith tradition. Um, I, the book's been out for a couple of months now. Uh, what kind of response are you getting from your readers? Yeah, I think the, the readers, it's been really positive in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people weren't sure what to make of the book. Um, and they took a risk and picked it up and read it and found out that this was a book that they understood. It was really for the church. It wasn't, it wasn't like a stuffy academic book. Uh, one, uh, one reviewer wrote that as soon as he read this, he realized that every book, just about every book he'd read on origins was out of debate. And he just felt like he needed to throw them out, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, and the reason why is that there's actually some new science here that really opens up space for differences. And so this isn't, this is really a new contribution. So that was one really example. Um, it's also been something that people who are not Christian have read. And some of the more interesting reviews have come from non-Christians. Uh, Nathan Lentz is an atheist biologist. He endorsed the book and he also wrote uh, 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 an explanation of why he endorsed it in USA Today back in October. But other, uh, other atheists have read it. One wrote that, you know, he 
his first read through the theology section, he just didn't, he just think that it wasn't really important and relevant. But then he went back and reread it and he said that he realized that, oh, there's actually something here for me as a, as a atheist who is often frustrated in my conversations with Christians and how maybe I can redirect this to the concerns and values that, that he's pointing to here that are really shared concerns that we all wonder about. So, you know, it's funny, like some way to the time when we engage with, especially non-Christians about origins, it's really about litigating uh, about whether or not, you know, their view of origins is wrong or whether or not our view is right. It's this zero-sum game, which does an immense amount of injury to the gospel, but more importantly, does an immense amount of injury to what the actual meaning of Genesis is, which is to really bring us all together to engage these deep tensions and questions about what it means to be human that even non-Christians wonder about. Even non-Christians wonder about what makes us different than other animals. Even non-Christians wonder about ancestral sin and about how to understand, you know, how the sins of our families and our parents and prior generations impact us now. Uh, I was, uh, I dialogued with an atheist, Nathan Lentz again in Columbia University in, in November, and he, uh, he said in front of a stage and then wrote it down <laughs> for everyone to see that, you know, while he doesn't really agree with a lot of stuff in Christianity, I mean, he thinks he's an atheist after all, he does see a lot of legitimacy to original sin. That's the one thing he can see that there's a lot of, of evidence for. <laughs> And of course, he says, I don't mean any sort of crazy supernatural way, but then he kind of lays it out. And I I kind of told him, well, you know, most, well, many theologians would say that original sin isn't supernatural either. That's really what Adam did, not what God did. And, you know, also like, you know, Genesis really dives deep into these questions about this tension about the goodness or evilness of the progress of civilization. This is something that in questions of climate change and, and technological process and you know, social media, people are always asking about. And these are the deep tensions to which Genesis exposes us. I mean, that's the, the, the societal exchange we're supposed to be having, where we take this 2,000 or multiple, even longer than that, like this 4,000-year-old Genesis tradition into dialogue with the real questions of a secular society instead of defacing that beautiful conversation with an ugly argument. And so I think some of the readers have really gotten that and that's been really encouraging. And of course there's also been resistance too. Uh, and so that's going to be really fun to work through and, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. You said a couple of times on our conversation that this book is for the local church. Why is that? And, and how should it be used by the local church? Yeah, so I understand there's going to be a lot of pastors listening to this uh, this podcast. One of, um, I, I mean, I wrote this more than with academia in mind, more than with anything else in mind, really. I wrote this with the pastor in mind, the pastor who really wants to do scripture justice in a way that can make sense to the seekers that enter his congregation and want to know how Christians think about origins and can also make sense to a very diverse range of people in the church that believe all sorts of things or frankly at odds with one another about these different things. And I wanted to see if there could be a better way. 
And I think this is a better way. So let me tell you a couple of things that I did in some certain ways that some churches are already starting to use this. And, I, and I'd encourage you to think about also bringing this to bear. So one thing that's really critical to understand about this book is that I don't actually argue that evolution is true. Or nor do I really argue. Uh, I, I just don't. I just don't argue that. I certainly explain that I think it's that there's legitimacy to common descent, but but this isn't really about about that. Moreover, I don't really even argue that this precise scenario is correct. It's really meant to be a starting point for conversation. It's a thought experiment. It's a way to engage with science and scripture and theology in a deeper way, no matter what your points of view are on, on this. One of the things I say early on and, and multiple times throughout the book is that, that whether or not you believe Adam and Eve are a myth or not, or whether or not you believe evolution are a myth, we can still enter into the same story together and just disagree about which parts of the story are fact or fiction. It's just a thought experiment. So what that does is it opens up opportunity to actually discuss this as merely a thought experiment that even uh, that even the pastor can disagree with, that even the elders can disagree with, that even uh, people leading a book study on it can disagree with, because the point is an agreement. It's rather that this is a starting point for conversation. It's a crossroads. It's a place where everyone finds something that they agree with, even though they may disagree with other parts. And that's what enables it to be a place of conversation where we can discuss what our agreements and disagreements are in a way that is less contentious, that even if we ultimately take a different view on origins, that's actually not the point. We can actually explain to one another why we think differently about things. Now, the reason why this is important is that origins is actually incredibly important to Christian theology. It's incredibly important. And we didn't have a way of talking about it. We don't have a way of talking about it that doesn't do one of two things or both. One, either provoke an internal internecine conflict about uh, you know, young earth creation, old earth creationism, and evolutionary creationism, and intelligent design. That's a really frustrating fight. Or provoking a unnecessary and distracting fight with seekers about science and a lot of them see incredible legitimacy to evolutionary science we can think they're wrong or not but that's just not the fight we want to have when they're when we should really be finding a way to explain the surpassing beauty of who jesus is and when we discuss origins explain that in a way that brings attention back to him rather than putting an unnecessary millstone around their neck a stumbling block about evolution so I think this book creates a place of common ground, a place where we can talk about our similarity differences, to talk about theology in a way that allows churches that have scientific seekers and also wide amounts of disagreement about origins to engage, hopefully once again, in a new way that avoids and sidesteps a lot of the, the debates and fights of the past. Well, if you want to stay connected and follow Joshua's work, and you can visit PeacefulScience.org. Follow him on Twitter. Go out and purchase The Genealogical Adam and Eve wherever books are sold. Dr. Swamidas, thank you for raising significant questions and dialogue about where we come from 
and the theological implications it has in our lives. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And, you know, if you have questions about the book, we have a forum. And if you're a pastor that wants to really explore this with your church, you know, this, this book is really for, for the church. And I hope it serves you. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites, fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in the